0: it's good to come together as God's people to sing his praise and to allow his praise to be on our lips and even as we come to uh, speak words of praise and worship and thanksgiving to God we also come hoping that uh, God will speak to us through his spirit and through his word and so as we uh, spend some time engaging in scripture this morning and we continue our series that we're titling how goes your walk Uh, We're being reminded again that a relationship with Jesus is a a journey of a lifetime. It's not a one-time decision that you believe some truth and now you're a Christian and that means that... Uh, You are in this special club of people who uh, are believers. It means that you're on a walk, you're on a life journey with Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, as your Master. He's the rabbi, he's the teacher, he's the one who we go to to learn about who God is and this world that God has created. And so it's good for us to check in with each other once in a while and ask that question, how goes your walk with Jesus? How does this journey of life translate into an ongoing relationship where we're learning more about who we are created to be and how God wants to use us to be a blessing to those around us in the same way that he called Jesus to be a blessing to each one of us? Uh, We're learning about this journey with Jesus as we go through the Gospel of Mark, and we were in Chapter 6 last week, and we'll be in Chapter 7. If you want to get the Gospel of Mark out and open it up on your devices, or we have the original flat screens provided for you as well, if you'd like to open up the the Pew Bible and turn to the uh, (laughs) Gospel of Mark, Chapter 6. We're actually going to be in 7, but I want to go back and look at the story, because again, as we've been walking through this series, we've been inviting you, if you're willing, during the week in your own quiet time in your own time spending time with god and reading his word to to read these stories of jesus and his disciples and to find yourself in the story where are you in the story in this season of life how do you fit into and what can you learn about what god might be calling you to do in your life as a disciple of jesus by being in the story with jesus and his disciples if you remember last week if you were here uh, jesus went to his hometown and was rejected by his own friends and family and, and he said a prophet is without not without honor except in his own hometown. Uh, and he identified himself in the long line of prophets in the Bible who God sent to people to bring a message, to bring a message either of, of judgment, but also a message of hope, of reconciliation, of, of a call to come back to God. And and Jesus started his ministry with this this command to to go out into the, the world and invite people to repent. And believe the good news. And, and we talked about how this idea of repenting isn't this uh, punitive punishment, you know, going to beat you over the head with the Bible kind of repent and believe. But it's more turn around and go in a new direction. Turn back toward God. Rediscover the deeper meaning and value of life. And, and turn away from those things that you've been pursuing that, that maybe you've been feeding your spirit on that, that really are more kind of like junk food and aren't really satisfying In your soul. So, this idea of of being a prophet and bringing a message of repentance from God is an invitation to come back to God, to, to enter into a new relationship with God again. But we also learned that as we too are called to go out and share this good news message, it can be a bit of a a dangerous proposition, right? Because the world out there doesn't want to hear the message that that God is in control, that this world belongs to him, that there is a a king and a ruler who has a claim and an authority on our life. Especially uh, in Western American culture, we're taught that we have total control and choice in our lives. And anything that questions our ability to choose, we kind of resist that, right? We go against that. I mean, that's one of the challenges we have even in marriage today, right? Because if you, if you get married, it means you have to submit yourself to the needs and the desires of someone else. And, and we don't really like to do that. You know, we're, we're taught that life is really about my own comfort and my own happiness. And anything that gets in the way of that, I have to fight against and I have to resist. And if you happen to be the person that's coming with a message that says, you know, you're not number one. You're not in control of your life. You're not the one who's supposed to be making these decisions about how you're wired and what the purpose and the meaning of your life is, mm, that can be a little bit of a challenge and it can actually be uh, dangerous to us, even as we saw it was dangerous to Jesus in his day. We also learned that it's not just words and information that we're called to share with people, right? We're not just to go out and convince them that uh, there's these four spiritual truths, and if you believe them, then you're a Christian, and you get your uh, get-out-of-hell-free card, and you make it to heaven when you die. Right? That, that's not what Christianity is all about. We're, we're also supposed to be a part of bringing the power and the authority that Jesus gave to his disciples to bring the healing and the deliverance of God's Spirit into the lives of broken people and into a community of, of, of broken families and broken nations. We are called to be a part of the kingdom of God that is emerging in the world through Jesus. And that we are invited to experience that same power that rose Jesus from the grave as it comes alive in us. So we become a part of the kingdom of God, not just information bearers about the kingdom of God. But there's also a risk involved in allowing ourselves to think that we have some measure of control over all of this ourselves, right? We can begin to somehow think that our own religiosity and the the, the things that we learn about Christianity give us something of a leg up on other people, and we begin to think that we've got answers that that nobody else has, and we can run the risk that our own religiosity can become an obstacle to our own relationship with God, and that's where we pick up the story today in chapter 7. Again, looking in chapter 6, we see that after Jesus sent out his disciples, he miraculously feeds 5,000 people, and then he walks on water and astounds his disciples. And all of this is going on, and there's these crowds following him, and and there's this group of people that are a part of the crowds that uh, are the the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or what we might call the, the professional religious people. We'll just call them the perps today, okay? So the perps These professional religious people are a part of the crowds that are following Jesus. And here we see that these Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Oh, no. The Pharisees and all the Jews... Did not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing. Now, Mark is pausing here to help us who are non Jewish people understand what this whole washing thing is all about, because it's not a hygiene thing. It's not like their hands were dirty and he was like, ooh, how could they eat food without washing their hands? This is a religious ritual that they're supposed to perform that they weren't doing. Um, Holding on to the tradition of the elders, when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observed many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites, as it is written, and he quotes from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me they worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother will be put to death. Now he's going back to the Ten Commandments, right? But you say that if anyone declares that What might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is, devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. Now, we're going to continue in this section in a minute, but I want to pause there and unpack a little bit of what's going on and what is Jesus talking about here. What we see going on is that these religious rulers, these experts in the law, and the ones who are setting themselves up as the teachers of the community, are actually using their religion to create obstacles in people's relationship with God. You see, the issue with eating with unwashed hands is about challenging people to live up to this perfect legal code in order to somehow make themselves worthy of being in God's presence, The religious leaders were so focused on doing things in the correct way that they were totally unaware of the presence and power of God at work in their very midst through this person, Jesus Christ. In chapter 6, as we said, Jesus had just miraculously fed 5,000 people by multiplying loaves and fish so that they all had more than they could even eat and there was food left over. And yet, here these Pharisees come, and and rather than being amazed and astounded by this miracle, what are they concerned about? This niggly little religious rule that his disciples are eating without washing their hands before they eat. Now, as we've been talking a little bit about this 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 morning, when we come to Jesus as well, perhaps we could ask the question in a different way. And, And the question I think for us this morning, I'd like to suggest is Are you hungry? Are you hungry this morning? And if you're hungry this morning, what is it that you're hungry for? Are you you truly hungry for more of God in your life? Are you you, you hungry to see God work in in ways that you might not expect? Are you hungry to see God use you to be a blessing to someone else around you in ways that maybe you never anticipated? Are you hungry to see the, 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 the stories of the Bible come alive in your own life and in your own relationships? Or, or are you hungry for something else? What, what is it that you've been feeding your soul on this last week or this last month or the last couple of years? What is it that you've been going to to try and, and, and nourish your spirit and, and to, to bring a sense of life and vitality into your life and relationships? And, and, and how's that been working for you? Is it possible that some of those things that we've been feeding on, spiritually speaking, aren't the right things that God has designed and intended for our spirits to thrive on and to live on? You see, these religious leaders in Jesus' day became so concerned about avoiding things externally for religious purposes that might make them somehow defiled or unclean in God's eyes that they didn't understand that God's concern isn't about all those external things. God's concern is about the heart. God's concern is about the internal things, our our own spirits, our own souls. The heart of the matter is the heart of God's people. You see, these leaders were struggling to impose their vision of morality and correct behavior on all the people in Israel. And maintaining ritual purity was a part of the ways that they uh, told people they had to live in order to be acceptable to God. When something was defiled, it was considered unholy or unworthy of being in God's presence. And you couldn't have something that was undefiled being part of a religiosity that Expected you had to be perfect in order to be in the presence of a holy God. So again, why was this washing process so important? The religious system that had developed considered uncleanness or this idea of something being defiled as something that was transferable through touch or through contact. So if you think about it, Right? Being spiritually unclean was like a, a, a spiritual virus that you could catch by coming into contact with something else that was defiled. Now, can you imagine what that would do to relationships and living in a world where you had to always be on guard against coming into contact with anything that might contaminate you spiritually? And yet how many times do we in our own modern day kind of maybe even live this out a little bit? If you think about some of the, our, our own recent history here in America with you know the Puritans and, and, and dancing and cards and seeing rated R movies. And how much do we focus or is the perception that as Christians we focus on all these external behaviors that you have to guard against and not pursue. All the while neglecting the condition of our own hearts. We allow ourselves to become judgmental and critical and and actually lead people away from God by focusing on all the wrong things, but maybe for the right reasons. You see, Jesus comes along and he turns this whole perspective of spiritual purity on its head. He claims that the prophet Isaiah that spoke hundreds of years before was prophesying about these religious leaders and and directly related to their way of thinking. Instead of drawing people closer to God, they're actually putting up harder and harder barriers for people to get to God. God sure cares about morality. He cares about how we live our lives and how we behave in the world but not for external show. He cares about the condition of the human heart and what our experience of life in this world is, and how that leads to the kinds of behavior and relationships and societies that he would want us to experience. For us today, you, it might be a kind of a, a silly um, experience. That, you know, after the service is over, we're standing out in the lobby, and I'm shaking hands, and somebody you know who is a visitor comes up and says, "Pastor, you know, can I ask you a question? Why is it that?" When you pray in, in, in your worship service, there's about, you know, five or six people who don't close their eyes, they don't bow their heads, and they don't fold their hands. I mean, how can you expect your congregation to connect with God in prayer if they're not doing these pr- prayer functions properly, <laughs> right? But we know that prayer is so much more than closing your eyes and bowing your head and folding your hands. In fact, that might be a good way to fall asleep, <laughs> Right? I mean, I don't know about you, but some of my most powerful experiences of prayer are, are, are being out in nature and, and walking around with my eyes wide open and, and my spirit wide open to the presence and power of God. Prayer is so much more than some religious ritual that we perform before our meal so that we can go on and check that off the list. Jesus says that their rigid and superficial religion is actually leading them to skip the deeper commands of God and the purposes for why God gives us rules to begin with. See, rather than removing barriers to God, they're actually creating barriers to relationship with God. And and, and Jesus uses the example of the Ten Commandments, and he goes all the way back to the, the first commands that God gave, and one of them was to honor your father and mother, but he says that honoring your father and mother is more than just a, a, a ritual of respect where you check that off the list. It's about have, having life, a lifelong relationship and care for them as your parents. They're the ones who brought you into the world and you should be responsible for their well-being on into their senior and older years. You need to care for their physical well-being. You need to provide for their needs when they can't do it anymore. And what was happening is these Pharisees, through all of their legal coding and systems, had this idea of korban, which we read in the scripture, which allowed someone to dedicate a sum of money or a piece of property to God, And then it allowed them to not be required to use that for their family members or for any other purpose that they didn't want to use it for. Now, it's interesting that dedicating money or property to God didn't require them to give it up. They weren't donating it. They were just setting it aside for God. And so what Jesus is recognizing is that in the name of their religious dedication to God, they're putting aside these resources which allow them to not help their own parents. And he said, you're you're missing the whole point, see? You're dedicating something to God, but you're not fulfilling the whole purpose why God said you need to honor your father and mother and, and respect and love and care for them throughout their life. See, this tradition allowed them to skip over the parts of God's law that they weren't exactly comfortable with or was inconvenient for them. How many times do we as Christians today perhaps lean into the grace of God and allow us to skip over the responsibilities that maybe God would have us to pursue in our own lives and say, well, God forgives me. God forgives everybody, right? I don't really have to change. See, Jesus goes on to teach the people that this idea that mere contact with something unclean can defile a person isn't accurate. True holiness, Jesus says, is something that comes from within and can only be affected by the presence and the power of God's transformation in our lives. Let's pick up the story again in verse 14. Get my glasses this time. I struggled with it a little bit before. Lucas, when I get old, you're responsible. (laughs) Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples showed their great intellect and asked him about this parable. And he said, are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? It doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them, for it is from within, out of a person's heart. That evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and are what defiles a person. It reminds me of uh, Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. If you remember, he was comparing the Old Testament law. And he would say, you have heard it said, you know, you shall not kill. But I say to you, if you even look at a person with anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. See, this is the same idea that Jesus is going, if you look at all the, the problems and the evils in the world and all the behaviors and the immoral, immorality that we might want to argue against, all of that comes from inside the human heart. So if you want to change the world around you, if you want to change your own experience, if you want to change the relationships that you have, you don't focus on the external behavior, you focus on the internal attitude and the spiritual condition of your heart. And the behaviors come as an overflow out of the condition of our heart. And the question for us then is, are we allowing God to be the ruler in our hearts it, with this message of good news that Jesus brings, that the kingdom of God is at hand? And if we turn and believe this good news, that God will come to us and he will, he will share our life with us in a way that allows us to experience his deliverance and his healing and his wholeness in our life. Are we willing to allow ourselves to experience this kind of relationship with God? Because the only way that we can is if we allow him to be the ruler in our hearts, which means we have to be willing to step off the throne. And that's not always easy to do. You see, for Jesus, it's a heart issue. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's always about the heart. The receptivity of the soil to receive the seed of the word of God and to allow it to implant and begin to grow and produce a a harvest or a a crop, The, the fruitfulness of life that we often hear in the Bible where they talk about this agricultural understanding of spiritual life. See, all the behaviors in our lives come out of the the word of God implanted in our hearts or not. Be careful, Jesus is saying, because our traditions too can become obstacles in our relationship with God. We too can't too quickly judge the Pharisees for their over-religiosity when we run the same risk of somehow thinking that we've got it all together and we've got all the answers and we've got it in control because then we don't really need God anymore, do we? See, we too can begin to become more devoted to our own traditions than to God himself. Now, tradition isn't always bad, right? Tradition handed down from generation to generation gives us a sense of rootedness and connectedness. And tradition can be good. And religious rules are often put in place to help us have a sense of awe and respect when we come to God and not, not to, to, to hold things too lightly. But these kinds of religious requirements can also give us a, a false sense of our own power and control, and they can unwittingly begin to crowd God out of the picture because the tradition itself can become more important than God in our lives. Author Yoroslav Pelikan said, "'Tradition is the living faith of the dead.'" traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. See, if traditionalism becomes the part and parcel of what we're about, if that's what we're hungry for is is our routines and our traditions and what's comfortable to us and what's familiar to us and the ways that we like to worship God and the ways that we connect with God, then we're missing the whole point that, that Jesus has come to call us on mission to reach out and share his love with a whole bunch of people who don't even know him yet. From the Pharisees' perspective, Jesus is completely out of control because he's disregarding all of their rules and their traditions, and that actually makes him a threat to their very social structure and society. It's no wonder they began to plot to kill him. Yet in reality, what we see from our perspective after the cross and after the resurrection, we know what God was really about in Jesus, we realize that Jesus came in order to make God accessible to everybody. Jesus wasn't trying to break down or build up barriers to God. He was trying to connect people to God. He was trying to break down the barriers and the dividing walls between people and between societies and between cultures so that he, we could understand that as human beings, we were all loved and called and created by God. That was Jesus' message, and that's still the message of Christianity today. How often do we mask that good news, though, with our own religious traditions that prevent people from hearing the message accurately. Maybe some questions for us are what are some of the sacred cows that may be blocking our ability to see God's greater purpose at work in our lives today or here in our church? What are some of those things that we hold on to that are are traditional but but aren't necessarily needed anymore? And are we willing to hold those loosely? And I'm not saying we have to throw the baby out with the bathwater, but can we begin to hold them loosely and allow God to to give us a sense of guidance and direction on what's important now and what's not? In what ways might we be going through the motions religiously, but not really allowing God to rule in our hearts? Some of us can come to church week after week and sit in the same place in the sanctuary and say the same greetings to everybody and go back and have nothing change 24-7 for the rest of the week for the rest of the month, for the rest of the year? How many of us have been going through the motions in in our Christian lives but, but never seeing any transformation of God at work in our hearts that leads to an overflow of joy and grace and love to other people? See, being good on the outside is not what matters to God because it's not what leads to righteousness and fruitfulness in life. Being good on the inside is what matters to God. And the only way we can experience God's goodness on the inside is to allow him to bestow us with his mercy and his forgiveness and grace. Because we know in our own strength, we're we're broken people. We're sinful people. We have temptations and we, we get off track. We need God's power and his love and his mercy to keep us on track. And ultimately, that's the message of Jesus, right? That's why he gave his life. So that we would allow that him to, to be our sin bearer. That we would allow him to be the sacrificial lamb. We would allow him to be the one who overcame all these religious rules and rituals that would separate us from God. To open the doorway for us to be in relationship with God again. That's what his whole life and death and resurrection is all about. He's opened the door so that we can be free to be in God's presence without having to worry about all these ritualistic rules. Because it's not about our own perfection, our own goodness. It's all about his goodness. And we simply are asked to receive it as a gift. You see, in Jesus, we also understand that God meant for his church, you and me, the the people of God together in this place, those of us who are a part of a faith community who have committed to one another to do life together like a spiritual family. We've been called to be in the messiness of life and to, to love and to work with people who have messed up their own lives and who come to church on Sunday morning, not all put together, but all broken apart, who are in need of this forgiveness and grace on a daily basis. And if you're, not able to raise your hand to that one, then, you know, you're probably not really being honest with yourself. Jesus demonstrates this fact that the next section, by, by going through, and we're not going to be able to read it today, but, but he goes and he goes to Syria. The Syrian Phoenician woman who, who isn't part of Israel, who isn't uh, the, the, the target audience that Jesus has, comes to him and says, I, my, my daughter's demon possessed, would you, would you heal her? And he says, oh, no, 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 we, we have to save the bread for the children of Israel. And, he, and she says, well, you know, even the dogs under the table get the scraps, don't they? And he goes, ah, ah, you get it. And he says, because of your faith, your, your daughter is healed. You see, this idea of eating and food and bread is, is woven into all of the story of Jesus. And, and, and underlying this question is, what are we feeding on? What, what are we hungry for? Are we hungry for religiosity and, and a rule system that somehow gives us a sense of control and that we don't have to worry about life because we know we're going to go to heaven when we die? I mean, that, that's a great part of it, right? We have this hope. As an anchor for our soul, the song says. And yet, it's so much more as well. We, can, we don't have to wait to heaven to experience the power of God at work in our lives. And he demonstrates this later in the story by healing the deaf and mute man, almost kind of in contradiction point to the Pharisees, right? These are the, the leaders and the rulers that supposedly can hear and see, and, and, and yet they're blind guides. And yet, the healing of God comes into this man's life, and and he he can now see and hear in ways that he never could before. And the question is for you and me, and for those Pharisees back in Jesus' day do we want Jesus to heal us? That's a tougher question than we might think. Do you want to be healed? Some of us are pretty comfortable with our disabilities. And the idea of being healed means that we'd actually have to change the way we're living. We might have to live differently. We might have to do something more than we are today. The idea of being healed sounds great, but when Jesus comes and says, do you want me to heal you? Some of us might balk a little bit and say, well, I, 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 I don't know. I kind of like my little addiction that I have going I kind of like my creaturely comforts that, that are a little bit selfish and a little bit me-oriented. You know, I don't, I don't know if, if I have to lose that to be healed. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not really ready for the power of God to really be at work in my life. See, later on, Jesus also says, beware the yeast of the Pharisees. Beware the yeast of the Pharisees and the bread that they bake with their religiosity and their outward forms of behavior that don't affect the human heart. Beware of religion that only affects the hands but never touches the heart. Having a correct form of theology and being able to parse Greek verbs and and articulate great, wonderful theology is great, but it doesn't change the human heart. The only thing that can transform the human heart is the presence and the power of the risen Christ through his Holy Spirit. And the only way to receive that is by saying yes to Jesus. The true life with God comes from a transformed heart within and spreads outward as the overflow of life and love and mercy and grace. And these are all the characteristics of God at work in our lives. Are you hungry this morning? What are you hungry for? Are you hungry for more of God in your life? Are you hungry to see the power of God at work in your life? Are you hungry for God to heal you? Or are are, are you hungry for some other things that maybe aren't satisfying but are really hard to let go of? What have you been feeding on in your life? And how's that working out for you? I want to wrap up this morning by looking at the words of Jesus from John chapter 6. And we'll have them on the screen for you. Verses thirty-three and thirty-five. For the bread of God, is the bread that comes down from heaven, and gives life to the world. Then Jesus declared, "I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty." I'd like to invite our worship team to come and join me on the platform again and. I want to invite us to spend some time doing just what Jesus invites us to do, to to come to him, to, to feed on his spirit a little bit this morning, to allow him to be our true source of spiritual sustenance this morning. And hopefully what we will discover is that as we leave this place today, this source of spiritual nourishment goes with us wherever we go. It's not just at church in one hour on Sunday morning, but God is with us and wants us to be with him. Would you uh, bow your heads, fold your hands, knock. I just want to invite you, uh, however you pray, eyes open, eyes closed, head bowed, eyes lifted to heaven. I just want to invite you to join me in coming to Jesus. Let's just spend a minute asking, examining our own hearts, and, and, and allow the Spirit to guide you. What are, what are you hungry for this morning? As you hear these words from the Gospel of Mark, as as you hear what I've been saying about this question of spiritual hunger, what, what is it that your heart is hungry for this morning? What are those places of deeper longing and need that maybe no one else even knows, not even those closest to you? But this morning, The God who created you, the God who loves you, the God who gave his son to die for you knows more intimately than maybe we even know ourselves those deepest places of longing and hunger and need, and he wants us to meet us in those places. Now let's take a minute and just explore what have we been feeding on? What have we been trying to feed our souls that, that, that hasn't really satisfied and hasn't been working? What are those things that we've been giving our time and our attention to that we've been investing our lives in? I mean, because that's really what worship is about. Right? Where are we where we're willing to invest our lives. What are we investing our lives in? And is that truly satisfying? Finally. Out of all of that, what is it that we need to let go of in order to give up control in our own lives, to allow God to be the king in our own hearts? What is it that we need to allow God to remove or to invite us to to give up in order to experience a greater measure of his healing and his wholeness in our lives? Holy God, you know us inside and out. And we hear your voice calling us to turn our hearts over to the mercy and grace and the power of Christ this morning. We ask, God, that you give us the courage to say yes to Jesus. And God, as we do, we ask for your healing touch to come and meet us in those deeper, deeper places of longing and need. Would you feed our souls through the presence and the power of your spirit? Would you allow us to let go of those things that we know are nothing better than spiritual junk food and to reorient our hearts and our lives back towards you? God, we thank you for your mercy and your grace and that you don't punish us or hold us apart from you, but you invite us to be wrapped up in your arms and to experience your forgiveness and your grace, not only this day, but every day. For this we thank you and we praise you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord.